is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now it's time for our American Dreamers series, which is sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And today, Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone you might not know, but you'll be glad to have met. Denny Sanford wants to die broke. So far, I've given away $1.8 billion cash. And there's probably another 2 to $3 billion that I will be giving away sometime, maybe within the next 10 years. It just worked for me. Born in St. Paul, Minnesota, 1935. AOL ran a study on how many people remain of the year that you were born, and less than 50%. <laughs> I'm in the minority. Survivors, okay? So that was kind of interesting. So we were born on the wrong side of town, uh, seriously on the wrong side of town, East St. Paul. And I lost my mother at age four, breast cancer. I never knew her because she was in the hospital when, when I was three. You know, you don't have memories back there. So. My dad did a great job raising me, absolutely wonderful guy. He developed a small distribution company, clothing, work jeans, parkas, work gloves, for selling to small town merchants. He got me working starting at age eight. After school every day, like I never was involved in sports during school, whether it be grade school, high school, or college, because I worked full time. Coming out of high school, I had three buddies that were in the Marine Air Reserve. I was in the Naval Air Reserve. They were in the Marine. And so they decided to go full-time. So we had a going-away party for them. And one of the guys walked out across the street and almost got hit by a car, and bad language occurred. And the guy stopped and knocked him out. He said, I've got a lady here. Boom, popped him, knocked him out. So. A bunch of us rushed down to help our buddy, and all of a sudden the neighbors get into the deal. And I was a tough kid. I, I knew how to fight with my fist pretty darn well. And I hurt a couple of people, not permanently. Two of my buddies took off with me in a car. Somebody got our license plate, my license plate number. They found us at a White Castle hamburger joint, and in come the cops. Whoops, whoops, whoops. So I got put in jail and then into a workhouse, which was like a prison. And we worked our butts out 12 hours a day, digging potatoes and I mean, whatever, a menial job. So living in, in cells. And the people in that environment kind of live that life. I mean, they'd get out and get drunk and disorderly, so on and so forth. And they'd go back in, hey guys, I'm back, you know. Now this, that's kind of their home. I said, I, look, I'm, I'm better than this. I didn't need to go through this kind of stuff in my life. So I got in touch with the judge. And I said, Your Honor, if you'd let me out, I had no plans on going to college, but you gave me a wake-up call. You gave me the best wake-up call I've ever had in my life. If you'd let me out, I want to go to the University of Minnesota. He said, I've seen your grades. I don't think you, <laughs> your high school grades are not that great. But 
the university accepted me on scholastic probation. And boom, I graduated four years and one quarter. So you develop confidence within yourself. Look, you're going to sit back and moan and complain because this went wrong or that went wrong. No, you work out of it. And Denny did work out of it. He built and sold a company for an amount which meant he'd never have to work again. Age 44, I uh, took up golf, became a pretty good golfer. I got handicapped down to seven. It's no longer seven, and now it's 27. So what? But I still win tournaments, okay? And I was bored. I wanted to do something on my own. So I branched back out, got into the credit card business and banking business. That bank, when I bought it, was an $87 million bank, and now it's a, in total about a $3 billion bank. I considered myself kind of modest. I don't go overboard. I drive old cars. And I take my own bottle of water to, to movies, and I'll be damned if I'm going to pay them $7 for a, a bottle of water. I'll buy popcorn. But <laughs> I get kidded about that a lot. Ah, this guy still takes water to movies. <laughs> yeah, I'm a pretty modest guy. I got to a point, how much more do I need? I'd rather help other people. Hmm? So uh, my intent is to die broke, and uh, I've got it all planned out. Huh? I, I don't have a foundation as such. You're looking at the foundation. I'm, I'm the foundation. I make all the decisions. Make sure it gets in the right hand. And you're listening to Denny Sanford, and, well, he started out, well, without a mom... And with a dad who put him to work at the age of eight in small-town America being a small-town merchant. And he learned just about everything in life there, and then with the help of a judge who probably gave him a break, uh, he made something of himself. But the interesting part about this story is what he does with all that wealth he created. When we return, what he decided to do with his money, and what so many people who make money do, and lots of people without money in this great country do, which is they give it back or they pay it forward. When we return, our American Dreamer's story, Denny Sanford's story, here on Our American Story. Hey all, this is Joey Cortez, a producer of Our American Stories. As always, we'd like to thank you for listening to the show. It's you, our listeners, that make this show possible. From the donations to the stories, without you, we wouldn't be here today. And we would love your continued support. If you feel so inclined, give us a tax-deductible donation at OurAmericanNetwork.org. And while you're there, submit your story too, and give us some feedback on ones you've already heard. With your help, we can bring you the very best stories out there. Thanks again for listening to the show. More of Our American Stories after the break. And we 
return to our American stories and Denny Sanford's story. And when we last left off, we were starting to get into his philanthropic work, and not enough is told about the philanthropy of both high net worth people and ordinary Americans. We're the most generous people in the world and give more than anybody else. Now let's return to Denny's story. I had an opportunity to go to build a children's hospital in the form of a castle. Kids normally don't like going to a hospital, but it's a castle, and it looks like a Disney castle. So they, they really enjoy it. They come from miles and miles away just to, for a simple operation. I want to go to the castle of care. Okay, so we have a lot of fun with that. And Denny's had too much fun helping that hospital network grow into what's now called Sanford Health. Now from the state of Washington all the way over to Lake Michigan. And I think we're probably about 350 clinics, 80,000 employees, 4,000 physicians. I mean, that's a big organization, one of the biggest in the country. A woman comes up pregnant with her father, introduces her father, Mr. Sanford, you saved my life. Huh? What? What are you talking about? Well, you see, I have a baby. We were at another health organization, and they said, you're not going to make it, and the baby's not going to make it. We went to Sanford Health, and they, they saved two lives in one. And I'm sitting with a bunch of guys at, at lunch, and it's like we all teared up. How good is that? The biggest project is my Harmony program, the most impactful. I read the book, Men Are From Mars, Women From Venus, after going through a divorce. A friend of mine gave it to me. You better read this, Denny, because you had some issues. So I read it, I reread it, and it turned out Dr. John Gray, the author, came to the Sioux Falls area for a seminar, which I attended. I tried to get him to create a program for children. I said, you are so right on in terms of developing better communication skills of men and women. Let's take it down to childhood. So I tried to get him to do it. And he said, Denny, I don't have credibility because I'm not a researcher. He said, you have a home down in Scottsdale, Arizona, where ASU is located. And they're a great school, very well respected. Uh, go and talk to the president there, see if they would have an interest in doing it. So I went and talked to the president, and he went through all the different schools within the, the school and came up with one, Family and Social Dynamics. Over a nine and a half year period of time, they created a program called Harmony, Sanford Harmony. And it's designed to take children at a young age, in pre-kindergarten, on up to middle school. You know the issue with middle school kids. I mean, puberty, so on and so forth, everything is kicking in at the wrong time. And you can't tell them anything. They don't want to learn. They, they know it all. Yeah, and all. The parents don't know anything at all. So the little green guy over there, that is Z. ASU came up with this idea. Let's create a non-gendered person. So the, we take the little tykes. We can't get on up to second, third grade. Okay, here's our new classmate, Z. Z came from the planet Z. And on the planet Z, there are no boys and girls. So Z wants to know what boys and girls are all about. So girls, tell Z what boys are all about. Well, you know what's going to come out of that. 
that situation. They're rough, they're tough, they think they're so smart, so on and so forth, in front of the boys. So the boys are hearing what girls think of them. Okay, boys, you tell Z what girls are all about, in front of the girls, obviously. And the system worked like, like magic. They communicate better, there are less problems, there are less bullying in the classroom, and they, they just get along better. And we have the kids go through every week, they get a new partner of the opposite gender. It has nothing to do with sex at that point in time because it's all pre-puberty. And, okay, Joe, your partner this week is Phyllis, and here's your project. They're simple projects, but it gets them to understand how the opposite gender thinks. Totally different, totally different. Just by happenstance, I had the opportunity of meeting a fellow here in town by the name of Mike Cunningham. Uh, Michael is the president of National University. And he's like my, myself, an old salesman, peddler type guy. He knows how to sell things. So I met him. He said, I love the idea. He said, let me distribute it for you. Harmony now is in every school in New York City, every school in L.A. We're going into Chicago in a big way. So we're now in front of over 8 million kids. Our goal is 28 million within three years. And we really have about an 80% divorce rate in this country, almost 60% legal divorces. Then on top of that, I know, we all know, a lot of other couples that just stay together for the children or for financial reasons. But the love and the care and so on and so forth has gone out of the, out of the marriage. So you take that group, I think it's about 80% of marriages fail, unfortunately. So. I think the Harmony program will be my primary legacy. And then at ASU created another program for me in conjunction with Teach for America to teach teachers how to inspire kids, get them believing in themselves. And I've given groups, big groups, 150, 200 people. Okay, I'd like a show of hands of all of you that have had more than one or two teachers in grade school that inspired you, got you believing in yourself. No hands go up. I mean, 150 people, maybe two hands will go up. Okay. Teachers are taught to teach subjects as opposed to teach development and inspiration. So the Sanford Inspire program, we put it in colleges across the country to teach adults. Today there are about 85 modules that the teachers can get on. Okay, how do you get kids out of a rut, or how do we get them into believing in themselves? We've got a horrible graduation rate from high school because kids aren't inspired. Everybody needs inspiration. A lot of people just don't have it, period. So. Denny's personal motto is, you've got to aspire to inspire before you expire. And another way he inspires is through the Horatio Alger Scholarship Program. Named after the author who wrote books about rags to riches stories, the Horatio Alger Society is a group of Americans who've done just that and then freely help other Americans with their rags to riches stories by giving them college scholarships to the tune of 159 million so far. In total, there are probably about 300 members, something like that. I just gave them enough money to give away about over 200 scholarships to kids. And every year they give millions of dollars away, primarily to 
kids that have come up through adversity. And some of these stories are absolutely unbelievable. They've come through adversity, but they still become significant. I'll give you a classic example. There's a little girl from South Dakota. She got a scholarship. I met her. Okay, so tell me your story. Well, my dad died when I was 10 years old. My mother got into drugs. Well, she's been in prison most of my life, and I've got a younger sister. So we were abused, raped and like by family members in homes that we were living in. Huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. This is 12, 15 years old. She was 17 at the time. She was telling me the story. So they went out and bought a tent. And during the summer, they lived in a tent. In the wintertime, they slept in gas stations. And they found people that would put them up yeah, to get out of that type of thing. She set five state records in track. She was the valedictorian of her class. And top of the mark all the way around. It just, and that is so common. Last year, I met a girl from North Dakota, again, 17 years old, that has a one-and-a-half-year-old child, raped along the way. But it's people that have gone through adversity that have risen above it. This kind of interview, I like because it gets the word out. Yeah, this is not hoorah for Danny. This is what he's made of and why. And you've been listening to Denny Sanford and the stories these young people have to tell and these beneficiaries of philanthropy around this great country. You've got to aspire to inspire before you expire. And by the way, the Horatio Alger Society, we've done 23 different member stories of the Horatio Alger Society thus far and want to do more. By the way, we'd love to hear stories from you about people in your neighborhoods who've, who've overcome adversity thanks to the generosity of local people in your zip code, in your neighborhood. Again, these stories happen every day. Americans helping one another, and especially the least of these, what we can do together if we try. Denny Sanford's story, an American dreamer's story, born on the wrong side of the tracks, mother passes away at four, builds a big financial services company, a billionaire dedicated to giving so much of it back. His story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we're about to tell you the tale of hidden treasures in America. The story of Forrest Fenn is one that captured the imaginations of people all over the country and the world. Here's Jesse. In the year 2010, a wealthy art dealer from Santa Fe, New Mexico, by the name of Forrest Fenn, hid a treasure chest worth over a million dollars somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. First of all, I'm really not that wealthy. I mean, I can live on the interest, and that's the definition of a wealthy person, I guess. I mean, uh, I have everything I want, but I don't want very much. Forrest Finn was an Air Force pilot with the rank of major, and he was awarded the Silver Star for his service in Vietnam. I had a hard tour in Vietnam. I flew 328 combat missions in, a, in about 348 days. I was shot down twice. 
I took battle damage a few times. I lost some roommates. I, I lost 22 pounds and didn't even know it. And when I came home, I was, I was tired. After his time in the Air Force, Finn opened an art gallery in Santa Fe that openly sold high-end forgeries of famous paintings. I had no education. I'd been a fighter pilot all my life. So when I opened my business, I didn't have a painting, knew nothing about business, knew nothing about art. Uh, and so I had to start from scratch. My first two shows, I didn't sell so much as a book. And I finally told myself that I had a little bit of money left that I'd saved 20 years in the Air Force. I said, I'm going to spend this money advertising, and if that doesn't work, I'm going to slam the door and go do something else. And it started working for me. And, and I learned to play Monopoly in my art gallery. Every time, I, every time I, I sold a painting, I took the profit and bought two paintings. Then I took the profit and bought four paintings. And over a period of time, it took me two years before I could finance my gallery out of accounts receivable. In 1988, Finn was diagnosed with cancer and came up with the idea during his illness to hide a chest full of treasure for anyone to go find. They gave me a one in five chance of living three years. And a lot of things were happening about that time. I was selling my gallery in Santa Fe and, and I had a, a lot of clients that were coming to see me to, to do different things. And it just so happened that Ralph Lauren came to my house. He collects antique Indian things like I did. He didn't know that I had cancer. But we were standing in my, in my library and I had something that he wanted. It was a beautiful Sioux Indian bonnet with white ermine hang, uh, skins hanging on it and split antelope horns and it was a wonderful thing and he wanted to buy it. And I said, well, I don't want to sell it. And he said, well, you have so many of those things. He said, you can't take it with you. I said, well, then I'm not going. <laughs> and, and we laughed and changed the subject but that night I started thinking about that who says I can't take it with me why do I have to live by everybody else's rules if I'm going to die of cancer I'm going to take some stuff with me and I made up my mind so I bought this beautiful little treasure chest 10 inches by 10 inches and 6 inches high probably Romanesque 11th or 12th century maybe it held a bible or a book of days but it was wonderful had a great patina on it as for the treasure itself, Forrest Finn loaded the chest to the brim with gold, gemstones, and artifacts. There are 265 gold coins, American, mostly eagles and double eagles. Uh, there are some Middle Eastern gold coins that date to the 13th century. There's a little bottle of gold dust in there, and there are hundreds and hundreds of gold nuggets, mostly from Alaska, placer nuggets. Two of them are so large that, that they're the same size as a, as a hen's egg. They weigh more than a pound apiece. And there, in this chest, I put hundreds of rubies. There are two beautiful salon sapphires. There are eight emeralds, lots of little diamonds, uh, pre-Columbian wakas, 2,000-year-old uh, bracelets, and a Tyrona and Sinu necklace that dates probably 2,500 years old. The fetishes on the necklace are made out of quartz crystal and carnelian and semi-precious stones. And it, I told myself I wanted it to be visual enough so that when a person found the treasure chest and opened it for the first time, they would just lean back and start laughing. 
Then came the task of hiding this treasure that was worth over a million dollars somewhere up in the Rocky Mountains, which could be anywhere from New Mexico to Alaska. And when I hid the treasure chest, I had to make two trips because the thing weighs 42 pounds. It's small, but its gold is heavy. And, and when I hid it and was walking back to my car, I started laughing out loud. And I said, Forrest Finn, did you really do that? <laughs> but, I, but, but I had a whole cart. I told myself, if I, if I decide later I didn't want to do it, I could go back and get it. But the more I thought about it, the more I said, yeah, this, this is perfect. Why, why can't I influence somebody a thousand years from now? A hundred years from now? Okay, next weekend. <laughs> if you can find it, I think it'll be worth your while. A lady reporter from Texas called me on the phone and she said, Mr. Finn, who is your audience for this strange book? I said, my audience is every redneck in Texas with a pickup truck, <laughs> a wife and 12 kids, he lost his job. I said, throw a bedroll in your back of your truck and go look for the church and take the kids. Get the kids out of the game room, away from their little playing machines and let them breathe the sunshine and the things that the forest has to offer. Wonderful opportunity. And I, just this last week, passed 25,000 emails from people and probably 15,000 of them have told me, Mr. Finn, we're not going to find the chest. We know that. But I want to thank you for getting me and my kids off the couch and out into the church. Thousands of people have searched and continue to search for the hidden treasure of Forrest Fenn. And there have been at least four confirmed deaths from people who were following the cryptic clues that Fenn left behind in his book, The Thrill of the Chase. The main set of clues come in the form of a riddle a riddle that anyone can use to find the treasure for themselves. As I have gone alone in there, and with my treasures bold, I can keep my secret where, and hint of riches new and old. Begin it where warm waters halt and take it in the canyon down. Not far, but too far to walk, put in below the home of Brown. From there it's no place for the meek, the end is ever drawing nigh. There'll be no paddle up your creek, just heavy loads and water high. If you've been wise and found a blaze, look quickly down your quest to cease. But tarry scant with marvel gaze, just take the chest and go in peace. So why is it that I must go and leave my trove for all to seek? The answers I already know. I've done it tired, and now I'm weak. So hear me all and listen good. Your effort will be worth the cold. If you are brave and in the wood, I give you title to the gold. The eccentric millionaire who hid a treasure chest of gold somewhere out in the Rocky Mountains for anyone to find. It's a strange and yet effective way to leave your mark on the world. And unlike so many others, Forrest Fenn would have done things completely different had he been given the chance. If I had my life to do over, I'd change nearly everything. I'd do the same thing over and over again. You know, <laughs> you, you read in, in these different magazines, they ask a question, what would you change in, in your life? I wouldn't change anything. Everything's been perfect. You know, I think that's such an uh, idiot thing to say, I think. Well, I'd do the same thing over again. Where you, Nothing wrong with slamming a door and starting out new again. Out of the night that covers me, dark is the pit from pole to pole. 
I thank whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. And I think that's a good place to stop, don't you? For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite recurring features, the story of a song. And we've done every kind of song from every type of musical background, from Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, to Kenny Chesney's There Goes My Life, The Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter, and Ray Charles's Georgia On My Mind. And now it's time for Greg Hengler's take on our favorite recurring feature. If you've been to a wedding any time between now and 2008, Chances are you've heard Beyonce's Get Out of Your Seat and Dance anthem about men's unwillingness to propose or commit called Single Ladies Put a Ring on It. Putting the lyrics aside, this song would be nothing without the irresistible and exuberant beat that sinks deep into your soul. The song is driven by staccato bounce-based hand claps and a keyboard. This hypnotic and irresistibly contagious beat gets everybody on the dance floor. What is it about this song that does that like no other? After some digging, I was taken on a fast, fun, and fascinating journey, linking what we hear in Beyonce's Single Ladies to what is heard in almost every black church to this very day. Let's begin by taking a trip back to the start and work our way up to Beyonce. Here's music historian David King. A lot of people, when they think of gospel music, think of the sound of the vocal, uh, they think of spiritual aspects of gospel, but they very often don't think enough about the rhythmic aspects and the driving beat. Gospel has that dun 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 right? It's influenced by Boogie Woogie and other styles. And that pounding, sort of frenzied aspect of gospel is really important to its spiritual aspects. It's, it's what caused people in churches to, to catch the spirit and to go wild. But it directly got transferred into rock and roll music through the gospel fervor and energy of people like Little Richard. Ooh, my soul! We gonna do a little thing for you. Saturday night, and I just got paid.
music historian Todd Boyd. A guy like Little Richard, as with any sort of black artist from that era, is giving you the black church as well as the black juke joint. Here's Little Richard's drummer, Charles Connor. Richard said, I want to bring you to this train station. I want you to hear something. So that listen to the train. The train's going off. He said, I watch when they pick up speed. He said, what kind of notes are those? I say, those are eight notes. He said, well, that's what I want you to play behind me. Here's the man responsible for the Motown sound, record producer Lamont Dozer. A new form of rock and roll, as we call it, came into play during the 60s when that was ushered in by companies like Motown. When there was a nice backbeat, beautifully sounding, good balanced sounding records, all America. Annie Lennox and Ben Harper. Motown music brought my world into abundance of color and soulfulness because those melodic lines and those fantastic chord changes and those beats, as soon as you heard the very first notes, you knew exactly what this was. It came out sounding like God. Robinson. On the very first day of Motown, Barry Gordy was there and four other people, and I, I was among them. And he said, okay, I'm starting this record company. We are not going to only make black music. We're going to make music for everybody. We're going to make music for the world. We're going to make music with some great beats and some great stories. And we're going to always do quality music. We would go places in the South, taking our, our Motortown reviews down there, you know. There's a big stage in the middle of the hall, and white people on one side and black people on the other side. It's segregated, but, you know, maybe you can do something about it. The next time we got to those places, the kids, they were dancing with each other. They were talking, intermingling, holding hands. His little black boy holding a little white girl's hand or vice versa. That was his idea of what he wanted his record company to be. Here's producer Greg Fillingaines. The basic elements or the main elements of the Motown sound had to do with a very solid but controlled gospel sound. It was rooted in, in a, a, a big beat, lots of bass, tambourine, drums, you know, very, very rhythmic. I said I love someone, but I know where I'm going to find them. Alibi! 
James Brown and the JBs in the mid 60s changed the sound of, of what dance music is. If you listen to, to um, Live at the Apollo, it's a great band, it's a great show. It's still very bluesy, very churchy, the show is. Here's Sheila E., Arthur Baker, Questlove, and Q-Tip. It was the drum playing. It was funkier than, than Motown. Motown wasn't really funk. That, to me, is the hypnotic power of the James Brown effect. He influenced Sly, he influenced Stevie, he influenced Prince, he influenced dance music. Indeed he did. Now, let's take this back to where we started. Here's the hit-making songwriting production team for single ladies, Carius the Dream Nash and Chris Tricky Stewart. All aboard for New York City! Trick started this beat, just a drum and the, and the quirky sound that, that we heard. And I just sat in the back. I just thought about if I was Beyonce, I would say what. I'm thinking, I'm quiet. He's not I'm giving me no, no love. He's yeah. not, he's not, we're not in it nothing. together. He's just. I'm giving him nothing. I'm Jedi. Trick stopped the beat. And I look at him, I was like, what's wrong with you, man? What are you doing? Hey, what are you doing? <laughs> and he's like, what, what do you mean? I was going to start another beat. I was like, yeah, you just go and sit in the like, like, happy, right? He's like, I got the whole thing. He's like, I just wrote the whole song. <laughs> The anatomy is there. The heart's there, the lungs, the the stomach, you know, the, the, the I just have to put the legs on. Don't pay him any attention. Cause you had to turn turn. Now you gonna learn what it really feels like to miss me. She came by to just kind of poke her head in and kind mm -hmm. of hear what it was, and she was like, oh. And she immediately, there was no lyrics typed out, like there was no nothing. It was like, yeah, let me get with that. Like, and, and the yeah. next thing I knew, she was on the other side of the booth. Singing, and we were like, "Yeah, this is this is this is this is happening." He's thinking about how to connect the dots lyrically. I'm thinking about B is from Houston. I'm thinking about Southern. I'm thinking about like to me, it's a church beat. So I just started with it. It's like that's a sanctified yeah, she's beat. A that, she's a Southern girl. I could see the paper fans in the church and the, and the wooden benches and the, and the reverend and the baptisms that are going on and knowing what's happening after that. That's everything I get from one sound. So I'm like, how do I get this Southern girl on the dance floor? I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And there you have it, who would have thunk it? from the gospel pews of the American South, 
throw in a lot of that great rhythmic talent of Beyonce and, of course, the producers. And we're talking about Tyrius the Dream Nash and Chris Tricky Stewart. The story of a song, Single Ladies, put a ring on it here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you powerful redemption stories of Americans who face crisis in their lives and how they're able to get through it. We've previously brought you energy entrepreneur Tim Dunn's story of losing his two-year-old granddaughter Mariah and how he dealt with that unthinkable tragedy. And today, Tim brings us an even more personal story about a crisis of his own creation. Because of a massive failure that I had like 20 years ago now, and I was in a deep, deep, dark valley looking for answers. You know, when you're in a deep valley, one of the main reasons you want to know is why did this happen? What is this about? How could a loving God let me go through this? You know, and now to some extent, it's not that different than when the child's in the crib at nine o'clock and you're still up and they want to know, how could you make me do this? (laughs) Okay. But that's hard to think that way when you're in a deep, dark valley, right? So I had a basically, I guess, a failure in business. And it it was a failure in a sense. It wasn't an economic failure. It was more of a, um, I didn't get my way failure. And in the course of that, things were said. And, you know, usually when you get criticized, you just brush it off. And, and it was a criticism, really, I'd had many times. Uh, you know, basically, the criticism boiled down to you're arrogant and you stomp on people. So, interestingly enough, these days, when they look for CEOs, one of the characteristics they look for is arrogance as a positive thing. Okay? Now, I understand why that is, because when you're arrogant, you think you know everything, and it actually does pave the way for you to say, I know I can get that done and just go get it done. The arrogance is actually a byproduct of the tendency to just go get stuff done, and the arrogance develops because you kind of consider everybody else doesn't know what they're doing because you know how to get stuff done, okay? So it's not actually the arrogance they're after, I don't think. It's the that's a, a sign that you're a get it done person. And, and that's what I am. I'm really good at getting things done. But this time it's stuck. And, you know, I'm a very, I'm a very devout believer and I take very seriously the, you know, love your neighbors yourself command. So because I had to face, well, okay, I get stuff done, but am I actually loving my neighbor? And I had to really think about that and come to the point of saying, no, you know, I am, I'm getting stuff done, but I'm not seeking their best interest. I'm seeking mine and coming to grips with that reality. So the circumstances didn't matter at the end of the day. It was this internal realization that was 
source of the pain. And there's a scene in C.S. Lewis's book, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where a boy turns into a dragon. And this boy is a really rotten kid. I mean, he's a, everybody can't stand him. He's spoiled. He's a spoiled brat. He turns into a dragon, which is like a physical manifestation of being a spoiled brat, right? Dragons are all about themselves. And in the course of that, he kind of discovers that, well, gosh, you know, being helpful to other people is actually a better deal. And then comes a time where the ship's about to leave, he's going to be left. And Aslan, the cross figure, who's a form of a lion, comes to him and says, hey, do you want to be a boy again? And yeah, because he starts to scratch his dragon flesh off. And then the Aslan figure comes and says, you can't get all that off yourself. I got to get it. And takes his claws and just you know, rips him apart. And Eustace is the boy's name. He comes out like a new person. Well, that's what it felt like to me. I went through two years of depression. And I never went, I never had diagnosed and stuff, but I had some people tell me on retrospect that the reason why you were sleepy in the afternoon, the reason why you lost your emotional fire, you were actually depressed. I was depressed because I was coming to grips with who I am. And I came to understand that, you know, when when the Galatians 5 says the spirits lust against the flesh and the flesh lusts against the spirit, and these two are at enemies with one another. There's actually three people in a boxing ring inside of me going to war, you know, two, two warring factions and a referee, and I'm the referee deciding who wins each bout. And I had always looked at it like there's two. There's me and there's the spirit, and I'm always negotiating with the spirit of, you know, how, how much do I have to do to make you okay? But really, my old self, you know, was the part that was negotiating that. And, and I would judge myself as okay as compared to other people, which made me a Pharisee, you know. And, and actually having to say, no, I'm not this person. And Romans 7 says, there's nothing good dwelling me in my flesh, you know. And saying, that thing, that thing I've historically thought of myself, it's rotten and bad and it's never going to get any better. And actually, it was, it was a death. I had to separate from myself from that and say, I am actually a different thing than that thing. I'm actually the referee in the ring, and I'm choosing on an ongoing basis which to follow. So I still have all the, you know, horrific thoughts and everything else. That thing's still there. I try to think of it like that movie, The Beautiful Mind, where the guy has the three, you know, and and he just ignores them. Mm -hmm. They're always there, but I try to make that like, oh, yeah, I, I know those thoughts came from you, but I don't have to do anything up for that. So that was this massive failure that I have. And during that time, I went to Job. Because of the story of Job, it gave me hope. My very being is largely shaped by Job. I think of him as like my best friend. And when we come back, we'll continue with Tim Dunn's story, walking away from that old self And, of course, making choices to help create a better version of himself. And Tim struggles. Well, these are all of our struggles. Tim, a devout Christian, using the Bible as his source, and so many Americans do. And even if you don't, so much to learn here from this story. When we come back, more of Tim Dunn's story. And, by the way, his book, Yellow Balloons, well, you can get it at timdunn.org. That's timdunn.org. It's a terrific read and will help any family getting through tough circumstances and any person trying to overcome some obstacles of their own, especially 
the self-created kind. Tim Dunn's story continues here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Tim Dunn's story. He's an energy entrepreneur who's telling us, of all things, the story of Job and how it helped shape and correct his own walk in life. Here's the story of Job. So Job is an ancient billionaire. He's got trucking interests, you know, camels, thousand camels, so that's like a trucking line. He's a trading company, you know, because that's what they use camels for. They were on a caravan. So he's probably a banker, too, because if you're in trade, you're banking. It's a banking conglomerate. He's got these massive farming interests. He's got an enormous number of donkeys. So he's, let's call it the cab. He's Uber. You know, he's got the Uber service. Uh, so he's an ancient billionaire. And the greatest man of the East, the Bible calls him. And he also had this giant family, which is also a huge blessing back in those days. And he's a super devout guy. He, he's the guy that everybody calls for advice when the city council meets, which back in those days they met in the gates. And then Job says, he says, he used to always call me in the gates. So Job is the man. That's the hero. He's, he's introduced to us. Then the next scene goes to heaven. Now, interestingly enough, in heaven are two characters, God and Satan. So... Satan's running around, and God sees him. He says, hey, hey, Satan. God calls Satan over. And he says, yeah, what? He says, have you seen Job, my servant Job? Satan says, yeah, what of it? He said, well, you know, he makes you look so bad. You know, you were supposed to be like that, and you were so full of yourself that I fired you. Well, that's what you were supposed to look like. You're losing. You're losing. I took a a lowly guy that was so much inferior to you, and he's making you look so bad. You are, I'm dissing you right here, okay? You're a failure. So, you know, that, that's trash talk, right? And Satan comes back and he says, wow, that look, 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 look. This, this isn't making me look bad. This guy is just a shrewd businessman, okay? He knows how to deal with you as a transaction, okay? He gives you what you want, you give him what he wants. What's so righteous about that? I mean, you, you pay good. He understands you pay good. You got good goodies. You get what you want. There's nothing righteous about this. If you let me ruin him, you'd see. So God says, okay, I'll tell you what. I'm, and and he, this is an important part, too. Satan says, well, you, you won't let me touch him. You put a wall around him. Okay, so you, you give me this protection. You got all this stuff. You know, uh, no, no, no wonder. So he says, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll take the wall down. You can go do whatever you're going to do. Just don't touch his person. So Satan, you can kind of hear Satan, yeah, you know, I got, I got, I'm, this, watch this, what's, what's going to happen. So Satan goes down and he orchestrates for every business to go bankrupt. 
all on the same day. They all go down. And all the kids die. The only one's left the wife. And then one employee from each business is left to come and tell him the news. He gets it all at once. So there's no question that's supernatural, right? He wants to make sure Job gets the point, right? And here's what Job does. The Bible says he worships. And so he says, look, I was naked when I was born. I'm naked again. If I can't accept bad from the Lord, then I don't really believe in God. So blessed be the name of the Lord. Pretty amazing. So now you go to scene two in heaven. So now Satan's back again. Once again, God sees Satan and God says, hey, Satan, come over here. You know that trash talk you had before? You're losing again, okay? See, see what he did? He worshiped me. He, you are so losing at this point in time. You are Donsky. And Satan says, ah, well, what, what? And by the way, Satan is actually a job title. It means accuser. His real name's Lucifer. He goes by. So he says, well, yeah, but look, you wouldn't let me touch him. Everybody give whatever they have for their skin, you know, their health. Just let me touch him. Then you see what happens. And God says something real interesting right there that you have to you have to grab onto to really get this story. He says, "Have you seen Job's reaction and how righteous he is? Although you incited me to ruin him without cause." So God didn't do one thing negative to Job, but He authorized it. He opened the gate. He unlocked the door, and God takes responsibility for it. You can't lose that. Okay. Hang on to that, because we're going to have to ask the question, why would a loving God let that happen, right? You can't answer that question. You don't understand this story. Okay, so then Satan goes down, and Job has his skin cancer, you know, and he's, he's sitting there scraping everything off. And now his wife comes, and we find out why his wife didn't die. And she says, why do you still keep your integrity? Just curse God and die. Nice. Nice uh, little uh, cherry on the top there, yeah. And so Job turns to his wife, and, you know, he's in pain. He's had all this loss. And he says to his wife, this is the most unbelievable part of the whole story, I think. He says, you speak as a foolish woman. He, he, doesn't, he, won't, even, he won't even say anything negative reaction to his wife, at, at the, even in the darkest depths. You speak like a fool. You're better than this, honey. You, you don't want to say things that are wrong like this. You know, we're not going to accept things from God. You don't speak like a foolish person. You're not a foolish person. Unbelievable. This guy, I mean, he's, he's ringing all the bells. He's such an amazing guy. So, then Job's three friends show up. Now, it's pretty pretty common to say these friends are not friends. Baloney. Look, these guys come from a long distance. They sit with Job for seven days without saying a single word. Would you do that? Would you care? Would you do? I wouldn't do that. In the ancient Near East, it was like the custom that the aggrieved speaks first. They sit there seven days. And finally, Job starts talking. And then most of the rest of the book is this dialogue. Okay. And it amounts to this. The three friends say, look, Job, you, you, you had everything, right? You must have done something wrong. God would not have done this to you if you hadn't done something wrong. You just got to repent. And then God will give you everything back. It's, just, it's, it's pretty plain. It's pretty simple. 
you, you didn't have enough faith, you, you, you made a mistake, you sinned, something's wrong. Just make it right, and God will put it back. Because God, God's not unjust. And If you didn't do something wrong, it would be unjust for God to do this. Some version of that. And Job's response is always the same. He says, I'm a man of integrity. If I were to admit I did something that I didn't do, that would be like just taking a plea just to get something from God. I'm not going to do that. If I knew something, I'd do it, okay? But I don't have anything. I'm, I'm not going to admit to something I didn't do just for some benefit. I actually don't think that speaks well of God, okay? So they're having this debate. Now, at the end of the book, God tells us his thought about this. The head of the three friends is a guy named Eliphaz. And God says this at the end. He says to Job, I'm really ticked at Eliphaz and his two friends because they did not speak well of me like you did. Now, that's very interesting. And Eliphaz and his two friends, God doesn't get mad at them because of what they said about Job. He's mad at them because of what they said about him. And you can read what Eliphaz and his two friends says. You know, God is almighty and God is righteous. And God, it all sounds great. But here was their fundamental belief about God. If you do what God wants, you will get back what you want. Okay. Now, does that sound like anybody else in the story? It's exactly the same view that Satan claimed. Okay. Now, I don't doubt that these three guys are believing guys and everything. Lots of us have wrong views about God. But here's the overriding message of Job. God is not a cosmic vending machine. He's not transactional. Okay. There is no price for the things on the shelf that you want. And it's good. It's good that that's the case because we don't know what we want as well as God does. And what great storytelling about a character that almost everybody in the world's heard of, a whole bunch of people believe in, and lots more have written about. And when we come back, we continue with Tim Dunn, the story of Job, And in the end, the story of a character that helped shape and straighten Tim Dunn's walk and so many others around America and around the world. Tim Dunn's story of Job, his own story here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of Tim Dunn's remarkable telling of the story of Job. 
And this happened right here in our studio in Oxford, Mississippi. We're about an hour south of Memphis. And Tim had come in to tell the story of the loss of his granddaughter. And of course, one thing led to another. And Tim was soon telling the story of his own personal demons and of the story of this great biblical character that everybody knows. Let's continue where we last left off. Job asked for an audience. He says, you know, if I could explain to God what he's missing here, okay? If I could explain to God how he should look at these things, then this wouldn't be happening to me. God's righteous. He's powerful. He'd do whatever he wants to. I accept it completely, but he's missing something. And if I had my day in court, I would explain myself and all this would go away. Now, interestingly enough, God does not blame Job one bit for that. But now the story concludes and he gets his day in court. And God actually appears to him, he says, in a whirlwind. Now, you'd think at this point, I mean, Job doesn't know God's bragging on him up in heaven, right? He's in the moment. He just knows his life is falling apart. <laughs> so now God shows up. You'd think at this point he would at least say, hey, you're doing awesome. No, no, he doesn't. He says, listen, you asked for your day in court. You got it. And you can ask me all the questions you want, but I'm going first. So listen, how about where were you when I made the universe? Do, tell me what's in the blueprint. Okay, tell, just tell me how, like, the reproductive system, how did you design that, for example, you know? Uh, how about rain, like the water cycle? How do, how do all these planets, like, hang in the space? And he just goes into all this physics of the universe, and uh, Job says, man, I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't I ask? I open my mouth. I'm not finished, God says, okay? Let me ask you about these two, just two simple beasts, two brutes, you know, Behemoth and Leviathan. Okay, can you tame them? Can you capture them? No, I didn't think so, okay? You wouldn't want to mess with them, right? They're just dumb beasts that I've made, okay? If you can't even tame dumb beasts, why would you think you could tame me? I made all of them, right? So that doesn't really make any sense, does it? And so Job says two things. He says, I realize I'm vile. Now, I realize I'm vile. Now, think about this. Job was the most righteous guy in the whole earth. God pronounced him righteous. But he realized his vile. You know, another way to translate that Hebrew word, small. And what he realizes is, I'm not near what I thought I was because I was comparing myself to all these other people. I'm the greatest of all men. But this is God. Okay, and that's number one. And the other thing he says, now that I see you, I just repent. I didn't really know who you were. And what Job realizes is, God's not a transactional God. He's not far away. God is close. So I saw that and I realized, oh, I'm vile. That's what I'm going through. I realize I am this jerk, you know, that stomps on people for my own good. And I'm not really seeking the best interests of others. Now, it's fine to stomp on people when they need to be stomped on, right? You got to fire somebody for the good of the company. That's okay. But that's also for their good. It's not just because you can. It's because it's not good to enable somebody to do something that's bad. But in my case, I was doing it for me. That's a fundamental problem. So, okay, I can identify with Job. I'm vile. That's the fundamental thing I was wrestling with. But then he does this thing of, I see you, and now I know you. 
I thought I knew you, but now I really know who you are. And that's when God says, okay, all done. All right, trial over. Let's give the guy double everything just to make sure everybody that's watching this understands how great a guy I think this is. This is the best guy ever. So then I grappled with two big questions. One is, well, why would a loving God allow all this to happen to Job? And it, that question wasn't that hard. It seemed pretty clear Job got to know God. And so, obviously, knowing God is one of the greatest rewards of this life. Okay, so, okay, that's pretty easy. But then the really hard question, I grappled with this for a long time, was well, why does it have to be this way? Why not just let us live a really comfortable life, go to heaven, go to Knowing God 101, have God tell of all this stuff. He probably has a great funny monologue and then a great story. And then, you know, uh, why not learn that way? And a couple of verses kind of popped out at me. One is Ephesians 3.10, and it says, The manifold wisdom of God is revealed by the church to a group of beings. And you'd think it'd be, well, revealed to believers or unbelievers or something like that. Here's what it says. The manifold wisdom of God is revealed by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, the angels, the demons. They're watching. There's a verse in 1 Peter that says, the angels are longing to understand They're stooping down, craning their necks, trying to understand what it is we're getting to understand. And you say, well, wait a minute. So they're understanding God by watching us. We haven't even been here this long. I mean, you got eons of history before human race started with the angels. They're in the presence of God. Job started off with Satan in heaven, right? They see him firsthand. They interact with him firsthand. They haven't just been through knowing God 101, they've been through PhD. So why is it that all these eons of time, they're watching us to understand about God? How can that be? And here's what dawned on me. They can't know God by faith. They can't. Because you can't have faith in what you see. That's not faith. That's sight. Faith is believing something you can't see. And 1 Corinthians says, there's three great things, faith, hope, and love. And only one will remain, love. And why is that? Because when we get to the other side in the new earth, we will have and we will see. You can't hope for what you have. You can't hope for a Christmas present in New Year's because you already have it. You just opened it, right? You can't believe in something that you see. So... Faith and hope are going to be gone. And there's something about knowing God by faith and through hope that is so spectacular that the angels are trying to understand and can. So here's what I came to. The reason why God let his favorite guy be ruined, which he took responsibility for, the reason he did that is because Job is such a great guy that God didn't want him to miss out on one speck of opportunity to know him by faith. And when he did, he would be way better off. Now, what we don't know is how could that be better off for Job's kids? 
because God doesn't tell us their stories. I know that I'm going through this story with Mariah, I'm better off. But I can't explain how Mariah is. If knowing God by faith is such a big deal, why would a two-year-old passing that quickly be good for Mariah? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But God doesn't tell us everybody else's stories. He tells us our story. And thanks to Tim Dunn for that storytelling, sharing his own life, the tragedy that befell his family, and how it brought the family closer together. That was the loss of his granddaughter, Mariah. And then, of course, his own, well, his own shortcomings and all the pain he caused all by himself. His own creation, the kind that we all, we all can do in our lives and bring to our lives. Tim Dunn's story, Job's story, here on Our American Stories. And send your stories, your favorite character in a book that led you to a different path. It could be the Bible, it could be, well, whatever. Send it to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Share it with us. We'll put it right back up on the air and let everybody hear it. Again, Tim Dunn's story here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories. And as you know, we tell stories about everything here. But our very favorite stories, well, they come from our nation's warriors. And on the 5th of December in 2012, Afghan Taliban fighters known for killing and kidnapping for ransom got their hands on an American civilian doctor working with an aid organization. U.S. intelligence zeroed in on where Dr. Joseph was being held and a rescue team was soon on the way. Helicopters inserted the SEALs into the mountainous region, and the men hiked for more than four hours in the dark to reach their target. For what happened next, then-senior Chief Edward C. Byers, Jr. would earn our nation's highest award for valor, the Medal of Honor. Here is the citation. The President of the United States, in the name of the Congress, has taken pleasure in awarding the Medal of Honor to Chief Special Warfare Operator C. Air Land, Edward C. Byers, Jr., for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty as a hostage rescue force team member in Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom from 8 to 9, December 2012. As the rescue force approached the target building, an enemy sentry detected them and darted inside to alert his fellow captors. The sentry quickly reemerged and the lead assaulter attempted to neutralize him. Chief Byers, with his team, sprinted to the door of the target building. 
As the primary breacher, Chief Byers stood in the doorway fully exposed to enemy fire while ripping down six layers of heavy blankets fastened to the inside ceiling and walls to clear a path for the rescue force. The first assaulter pushed his way through the blankets and was mortally wounded by enemy small arms fire from within. Chief Byers, completely aware of the imminent threat, fearlessly rushed into the room and engaged an enemy guard aiming an AK-47 at him. He then tackled another adult male who had darted towards the corner of the room. During the ensuing hand-to-hand -hand struggle, Chief Byers confirmed the man was not the hostage and engaged him. As other rescue team members called out to the hostage, Chief Byers heard a voice respond in English and raced toward it. He jumped atop the American hostage and shielded him from the high volume of fire within the small room. While covering the hostage with his body, Chief Byers immobilized another guard with his bare hands and restrained the guard until a teammate could eliminate him. His bold and decisive actions under fire saved the lives of the hostage and several of his teammates. By his undaunted courage, intrepid fighting spirit, and unwavering devotion to duty in the face of near certain death, Chief Petty Officer Byers reflected great credit upon himself and upheld the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. That first American assaulter who was mortally wounded was 28-year-old Nick Check. After making sure that all the hostiles were down and the American hostage was safe, Chief Byers tried desperately to resuscitate his brother both on the ground and throughout their 40-minute-long flight back to their base. Check was posthumously awarded our nation's second-highest award for valor, the Navy Cross. And Chief Byers, as you heard, earned the Medal of Honor. Here is Chief Byers, who, by the way, remained on active duty, addressing a crowd gathered to induct him into the Pentagon's Hall of Heroes. Good afternoon, everyone. I've realized throughout my life that time is the most precious commodity you have, and I sincerely thank you all for your time today. I will speak just long enough to give credit and recognition to the heroes in my life and to those who deserve to know that they are the reason that I'm standing here today. Those heroes are my family, my faith, and the brotherhood. Family is the reason I'm able to do this job, and it's also the reason to live and to return home safely. Madison, my incredible wife, Hannah, my beautiful daughter. This could not have been possible without your resiliency and love. Your strength in my absence is something I've always admired and respected. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. I will never forget how each time I returned home from long times away, you'd be waiting to pick me up, sometimes in the middle of the night, waiting to give me a hug and a kiss. Especially you, Hannah. I would not be the man I am if it were not for the two of you. You are my heroes. I love you. Hand in hand with my family is my faith. While it has had a more quiet aspect of my life, it has always played a significant role. I grew up Catholic and continue to grow in my faith, thanks especially to my brother, Trevor. He taught me to turn my heart and soul towards Christ when I have strayed or lost my way. Prayer has always provided calm amidst chaos for me. On my first deployment to Iraq some 11 years ago, I arrived in country and I saw another SEAL 
standing there with him, St. Michael the Archangel patch on his shoulder. I'm not sure what drew me to it, but I walked up to him and asked him if I could have it. He was leaving the combat zone and made it through a safe deployment. He handed it to me without hesitation. I've worn a patch on my kit on every single mission I've ever been a part of. And I prayed the St. Michael prayer while moving in the toughest missions I've faced. And it does start by saying, St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, be our protection. On that day in December 2012, the day you heard recounted several times about my team and the way we carried out the mission to rescue American hostage, on that day, just like every day, I prayed. I prayed on the way to my target, and again I prayed over my brother Nicholas Check for his soul as he gave his life to save another American. Nick Check was a warrior, a brother, and a friend. I know I said this repeatedly since this has started, but this award is inseparable from his death. Nick embodied the brotherhood. Nick embodied what it meant to be a Navy SEAL. He was hard as nails, resilient. He had a never quit, never fail mentality. Nick, along with the rest of our team, carried out some of the most difficult and dangerous missions our nation could have asked us to do. Nicholas Check paid the ultimate sacrifice, doing what he loved on the battlefield because this is what brothers do. They will lay down your life for you if they have to. We are again reminded this morning of the continued sacrifices the men and women of our nation make. The hotel where many of our sustain overlooks Washington, D.C., the Pentagon, and Arlington National Cemetery. I, along with many of my teammates, have been to many funerals at Arlington, probably more than we should at our age and our life. We've seen too many good men buried. So many may ask, what is it that keeps you going? How are you standing here after such loss? The answer is, undoubtedly, without question, the brotherhood. I say the brotherhood for last. I want to emphasize that I'm no different than any one of my teammates. I'm certain that any one of them would have taken the same exact actions I did that day. I've seen countless heroics acts in my time working with the nation's most elite operators. I feel a sense of responsibility with the recognition that has been bestowed upon me. My brothers who are still fighting, who are still in the shadows, deserve to share the spotlight where we are a community of quiet professionals and those men would not expect or seek recognition for their actions. I proudly wear this trident to represent the Brotherhood. And now I've been welcomed into another group of exceptional military heroes. I look at the names in the Hall of Heroes and to the brave men right in front of me here and realize the tremendous amount of bravery that flows through our American veins. Freedom is in large part paid by blood, sweat, and tears. I've never imagined my life would lead me here. I'm truly humbled and honored to represent the Navy and the Naval Special Warfare community. My only desire is that my representation is something my brothers who I serve with would be proud of. Because the deed is all, 
not the glory. May God bless you, and may St. Michael the Archangel protect our warriors in battle, along with the Brotherhood. Thank you. And you were listening to Navy SEAL Master Chief Edward Byers, Jr., and that's what our fighting men sound like. The humility, it's there, you can hear it. He doesn't even want to be there. He really doesn't. He has to be, because it's an order. But he knows that he doesn't act alone. And the Brotherhood is the reason. Talk to any of these guys. It's more than country, actually. You really get to know them. Obviously, they love their country. But what they do and why they do it, it's because their brother would have done it, too. And it's why we always cry when we hear these stories. The deed is all, not the glory. And we could say that every day before we start the day. And we'd all have better lives especially in this Instagram, Facebook, fame culture. It's so empty, and we all know it. Navy SEAL Master Chief Edward Byers' story, every soldier's story, here on Our American Stories.